Hello, and welcome to another episode of Knoll Country for Old Men. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And my co-host today, as always... I'm Ed. Always Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, I don't have a a bit worked up for this weekend. We'll get to bits in a bit, I'm sure. Today's topic is... Everybody's favorite holy warrior, everybody's favorite falling down problem in Dungeons and Dragons, the most lawful stupid of all the classes, the paladin. I tried really hard to think of some jokes or some puns to go with a paladin, but I I got nothing. Well, I mean, we're recording this in the evening, so I guess it's a holy night. Oh, that's where we insert the air horn. I'm not inserting an air horn. I swear one of these days I'm actually going to get a uh, soundboard. Well, if you want to go ahead and do that, be my guest. Soundboard gives you plus 10 to obnoxiousness. I mean, I think one of the cantrip spells can basically be used as a soundboard if you look at what it does in the rules. Is that thaumaturgy? Yeah, I think thaumaturgy. Nice, called it. Some of the other ones also make like noises and stuff, and you could basically use it as a soundboard, if you felt like it. But before we get on to the Paladins, we have a segment in this podcast called The Weekend Hobby, uh, where we talk about the things we've done over the last week. Uh, I'll go first this time, for a change. Over this last week, I have played several games. I have my two Eberron campaigns ongoing. One of them did a dungeon crawl. They were given three potential adventures to go on, and they selected the one I was least excited about. Because in my career as a graphic designer, I've learned that if you provide a client with three choices, they will always choose the one you are least excited about. I've had similar experiences in creating artistic stuff for clients as well. Yeah, so I tried to create three things I was excited about, and they managed to pick the one that I thought was least interesting. Whatever, it was still fun. There was a cool puzzle. There was a good boss fight. And now I've got a whole nother cool thing planned for them to do, and then some big stuff coming up that is that should be vague enough that they won't get anything. And my other group did their sky chase sequence, and then they got the opportunity to pick what job they wanted to do. Of the same three, and they also picked the dungeon. Two groups picking the same one. Whatever you did for that hook must have been appealing. I mean, I think the name The Shadow Forge is just just kind of intrinsically interesting to players. It calls the inner void that lurks in the heart of every adventure for the sweet release of death via dungeon. Via falling into an endless void of shadow? Yep because it has an endless void of shadow. And I also got started, we did a session zero for my campaign of The Sprawl, which is a cyberpunk game using the Powered by the Apocalypse system. And uh, yeah, we basically just uh, worked on sort of defining the settings collaboratively and building characters and everything. And that's going to be a lot of fun when we get the first session of it started this week. I have to say, our vision of Neo-Portland in 2079 is pretty sweet. Does it feel painfully relevant 
to what it's actually like? No, because it's a very extreme cyberpunk shenanigan thing. Uh, one of the key elements is that the big one, the earthquake that we're all waiting for here in the Pacific Northwest, hit and destroyed a lot of stuff. And so the city had to rebuild, and hence the Neo-Portland aspect of it. But one of the things they didn't rebuild was all the bridges that got knocked down, with a very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. So there's a big split between the east side and the west side in terms of how easy it is to like cross between them if you're just a normal person. Uh, you have to, you know, either take the Tillicum Crossing, which is a like military checkpoint, or you take the long way around, or you hop a water taxi or a you know, ferry, like private service that you got to pay money for. Or if you're rich, you just helicopter across like a like a true douche. Or you can try to make the crossing on the Free Mount Bridge, which is condemned and uh, turned into like a community of outcasts and sort of like they've built housing up onto the bridge and uh, all sorts of cool stuff. Honestly, depending on where you go, in my experience in town, that still seems fairly accurate. Yeah, but, you know, City of Portland police are just bad. They're not wholly owned by IBM Raytheon Blackwater, like in our setting. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And uh, the Feed, which is a one of the corporations that we're using is a social media slash consumer products slash data mining company that uh, owns and operates the only major chain of grocery stores and department stores in the Portland Metro, or the Neo-Portland Metro, Feed Myers. That one hits close to home. Yeah, for you, I imagine, I imagine that would be very close to home. Although I suspect they probably would have in-house... Uh, security electronics people, so you'd probably have a steady job with them. Probably. I don't know, I still feel like when you have armed security guys wearing tactical vests and bulletproof vests with a gun, that's still pretty dystopian, even in the real world, when they're uh, guarding your supermarket. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I think that's going to be real fun. I expect to have some great stories from that especially once they start the campaign this week and have them take jobs and go up against some of these corporations. We've got a good set of players. None of us have ever used this system before, so that'll be a little tricky, but I'm looking forward to it. It's very narrative-driven and character-driven, so yeah, it should be cool. Sounds like a party. It, yeah, it's a, it is a party. So how about you, Ed? What have you done this week in hobby? Sadly, not a whole lot. Been gaming more vicariously through uh, listening to Queens of Adventure, which is a D&D live play hosted and played by a group of drag queens. It's pretty funny. Uh, if you have a podcast listener, I recommend listening to them. Uh, replaying a lot of the original Baldur's Gate for the PC Uh, Nearly done with the first one, finally moving on to the second one after 20 years. I don't know how long ago that game came out and just never got around to playing it. Have you gathered your party before venturing forth? Yeah, but I don't really know how well I'm actually going to go up against Saravok in the final battle. I'm 
tempted to just say, screw it. I know how the game ends anyway. And just saying close enough and moving on to the next one. Hmm. Well, I mean, any anytime you have Minsk and Boo around is a good time by my standards. Someday still got to get that model that they released for Minsk and Boo. Yeah, the little collector's edition resin one. Yeah. Yep, I've got it. It's great. It'd be even better if not only did they include Minsk, but actually a giant hamster model to go with it. Oh, well, I mean, Boo is a miniature giant space hamster, so... We just gotta make an an even bigger space hamster. A regular giant space hamster. Yeah, there we go. I think my favorite reference to that is in one of the Mass Effect games. Because, as you know, those were made by Bioware, which had been involved with the Baldur's Gate series. And you can buy a hamster for your spaceship as a pet that stays in the captain's quarters. And when you look at the hamster, like the the like text for it says the hamster looks at you knowingly. <laughs> nice. I don't think I actually ever got around to that. Whatever uh, Mass Effect that was, I'm still on Mass Effect Two. I'm a bad nerd. It was two or three. I'm not sure. I tend to not stay very current when it comes to video games. I spend a lot of time playing stuff that's nearly as old as I am. It's not like the Mass Effect series is new at this point i'm, I'm gonna wait till it gets that kind of that retro flavor before i go back to it wait till they release an updated like remastered version a remaster of the remaster okay so we another 10 years or so yeah i just gotta i just gotta double down on the hipsterness of it be like oh i'm i'm playing the og version on the 360 well i've been playing some age of empires 2 which is i think 20 years old at this point yeah, that's a that's a good one. Like I said on a previous episode of the podcast, somehow they seem to have made that game even more perfect. Yeah, it seems like it. So no real hobby. So yeah, hopefully something for hobby this week. I don't know. I'm spending a lot of a lot of energy in the electron mines, and it doesn't leave a whole lot left for anything game related. Shocking. Very. Right, with that taken care of, it's on to the Paladin. So, the notion of a holy warrior is not a new one. It's been around for a long time, and you can see examples all over the place in mythology. Uh, The Old Testament is a great example. There are a number of divinely blessed warrior king characters in there who, you know, are given power from their god and told to go out and beat up a bunch of people and kill them and take their land and whatnot. However, the term paladin and the aesthetic that Dungeons and Dragons pulled it from has a very specific source, and that source is Medieval Europe and the Song of Roland and the various mythological cycles that surround it. You could basically consider the Song of Roland the French equivalent of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. They're are a lot of similarities, and there's been a lot of, like, cross-pollination between the two mythological cycles, so they're worth checking out on their own. I feel like I may have been exposed to the Song of Roland at some point, but if I have, I've forgotten. You've probably heard remnants of it. It pops up here and there because it's in French most of the time. It's not as well-known in the Anglophile community because, uh, well, no one wants to speak French. Apologies to any listeners we have in France. 
Also, I've seen in our stuff that we have some listeners in Germany, so V Gates. Jawohl! In the original stories, the Paladins are a group of 12 fictional knights, members of the court of Charlemagne. And there are sort of chivalric and religious connotations of these knights. 12, if you're not aware, has something of a... is a number that has something of a special meaning in Christianity. Uh, there were 12 apostles in the Bible. There were 12... you know, it's a number that a group of 12 people is special. And this kind of plays into that. For a little bit of historical context, these stories are set during the Umayyad invasion of Gaul, which is southern France, northern Spain, during the 700s Common Era. This was an invasion from the forces of a different religion who had driven nominally Christian kingdoms out of the Iberian Peninsula and were poised to push into France. It was an area of heavy religious conflict and political conflict, and it kind of stopped there. This was the high watermark of the invasion of the Umayyad Caliphate. And then this conflict would continue during the Reconquista for about the next 700 years or so. 700, 800 years for, for the final date of the Reconquista ending. And as a side note, a D&D campaign based in like a Reconquista-style conflict would be really interesting if run thoughtfully. Yeah, I can get behind that. Two socio, two political groups fighting it out and different religions and yeah, I, I think you could have some real fun with using that as the background conflict for a D&D game. I, I tread lightly, but it could be interesting if you have a group of like-minded people who are interesting in doing more than just hacking away goblins. Yes, you would have to tread lightly, and I think you'd be best off by treating it as two religious groups doing this war, and neither of them are, like, worshipping an evil god or something would be the smartest way to play it. Like, if it, it's just two different viewpoint uh, religions. Kind of, kind of defeats the purpose if the opposing side is worshipping Merkel or somebody like that. Yeah, it definitely don't have one side be orcs. That's uh, in poor taste. Um, I believe we call that genocide. Usually, yeah. Depending on how the setting is set up. Well, I mean, I guess you have them be orcs if you're writing it in the early 20th century is a mythological take. But never mind that. So this was a historical conflict that this was set in, and the knights and stuff were, the stories about them were popular. Kind of, honestly, kind of like how westerns and stuff are now for a long time. Stories about heroic and chivalric knights were a genre of literature. The term paladin was expanded beyond just these 12 specific ones to include any chivalric knight figure including the English Knights of the Round Table, some g specific German mytho-historical mytho knights, and a lot of different knightly orders that flourished during the Middle Ages were, you know, paladins. We could discuss the historical context and all the works it appeared in, but there's a huge number of them, and that would take a long time. It's just important to know that the paladin is basically a heroic knightly figure, and... This cultural ideal is what the early designers of Dungeons & Dragons understood. 
They were very specifically also influenced by the novel Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson, uh, American science fiction author. It's about a guy, a like modern day guy who gets flung into an alternate reality fantasy world where he does paladin stuff, defeats the forces of evil and uses divine powers and all this shenanigans. Um, I haven't actually read it, but I have read a bunch of the author's other more science fiction stuff. So I don't think it would probably be that bad. His writing is fairly decent, if a little dated. So like a lot of other classes that aren't just the basic three or four, Paladins were first introduced to Dungeons & Dragons in 1975 with the Greyhawk supplement. And like a lot of these other classes that weren't the original four, they started out as a subclass. In this case, a subclass of the Fighting Man. From the get-go, they had a number of abilities that made them special. They got bonuses to mounted combat. They cast spells sort of similarly to the cleric class, but weaker. They were able to detect evil. They were able to heal people and cure diseases by laying on hands, sort of like magically touching them and using that divine power that you've been given. And they were immune to disease. This all sounds very, very strong, and it was, but it was restricted by the fact that paladins have a strict code of behavior. And if they stopped following the code and fell, they would lose most of their abilities. The original Paladin Code required them to be lawful good, restricted how many magical items and physical possessions they could own, required that they give away excessive wealth, and were only allowed to associate with other characters if those characters were lawful or good, preferably both, and occasionally neutral. Evil characters were right out. Hmm. Sounds like it could definitely be some interesting role-playing opportunities, but man, that's a that's a lot that both the player and the DM are going to have to keep uh, in mind role-playing wise. Yeah, and they were very specific. When I say they could only associate with characters that were like this, there were very specific guidelines on what other uh, alignments you could hang out with and go on adventures with. It was not a easy class to run, essentially. Much of this past persisted into first edition, basically unchanged. Paladins appeared as a subclass in the player's handbook with very high ability score requirements and a restriction to lawful good humans only. It was perhaps the most restrictive class in the game. In second edition, paladins were one of the standard character classes under the like warrior subset. It remained one that required high ability score prerequisites and, as before, could only be played as a lawful good human. No other types of paladin were allowed. It wasn't until 3rd and 3.5 that a lot of the restrictions were eased. Paladins still kind of needed some very good abilities because they needed strength for fighting, Charisma for using their paladin powers, wisdom for casting spells, and constitution for hit points. So that's four stats that need to be high all the time. They were still required to be lawful good in 3.5, but they were not required to be humans anymore. It was opened up to everybody. Which, uh, thanks? Could have done that a bit earlier? Probably. And the code and restrictions on them were eased a lot as well. The player's handbook 
listed a lot of things that paladins sort of like oaths and tenets that they were supposed to do never willfully committing an evil act being truthful and forthright in all dealings giving warning and quarter to foes stuff like that 3.5 also had a rule that prevented paladins from multi-classing as a paladin once you took a level in any other class you were restricted from ever taking a level again in paladin because you were no longer reflecting the devotion and purpose that your deity expected of you. You've lost your focus, man. You could still use paladin abilities, as long as you weren't, you know, breaking paladin oath stuff, but you couldn't become a better paladin. You you went off to do something else, and your deity was like, no, no, that's not allowed. Could be an interesting character opportunity. Yeah, it did restrict paladins a lot in sort of multi-class builds that people would come up with because you would have to do your paladin levels first and then you went off to do your dip in some other class. It's neither here nor there. It's not a system that I plan on playing ever again, so it's whatever it is. So long, 3.5. Bye. Paladins also got Smite Evil, where they could sort of dump their power into attacks and do extra damage, and find Steed that allowed them to summon a horse, which is a pretty sweet ability. Yes. I love that idea. Yeah, now it's just a spell that paladins know. Interesting, not quite as cool as the find Steed just summon a horse. Now it's a magical spell that you can get as a paladin. Well, they should... They should call it still Find Steed, but instead of summoning a horse, it just finds the nearest woodland critter and enlarges it to a rideable size. That's how I would roll with that one. I'll discuss a little later one of the 5th edition Paladin Oaths that you could basically say Find Steed does that for them. <laughs> nice. In 3 and 3.5, Paladins that broke their oaths and lost their powers also got a new option. The Blackguard subclass, prestige class kind of thing, was available in the Dungeon Master's Guide, and it was for paladins who chose to embrace the dark side. You got sort of reversed evil versions of all the paladin abilities. It did require that your Dungeon Master be approving of it, and a lot of the powers depended on how many paladin levels you had before you flipped and became a blackguard. So it was a little weird, kind of fun, a good role-playing opportunity, I guess, if you want to be evil. I've never been in a live game that involved one character being some sort of, like, actually evil rather than just lawful dick like my characters tend to be. It seems like it would be difficult if you had a character who could be running very counter to the goals of everybody else in the party. I played in a game in college that was an all-evil campaign because we were a bunch of college students who were like, yes, let's just play a game where we're all evil. Did y'all just turn into murder hobos? Eh, no, it was kind of a revenge story where we... I'm not going to go into it here. It was a revenge story, and it, it the plot was pretty dumb. I guess revenge falls under neutral evil. Yeah, it, it was very railroady, and there was a DMPC, and yeah, yeah. 
College game. Don't need to go any further into it. These old editions of Dungeons & Dragons is where the lawful, stupid paladin archetype comes from. Yay! The concept of a character who is good-aligned, but is so constrained by their code that they can't recognize any form of evil other than the most cartoonishly obvious version. They're like, hey, paladin, look over there. Stab someone. Oh my god, what happened? Sort of thing. Lawful, stupid, it's, it's a fun device that you can use, but I don't like it from players. I think it's a better thing for dungeon masters to do. Yeah, just having a, a lawful, stupid NPC show up and having to navigate around whatever shenanigans they're doing. Um, as a player, I would find that pretty entertaining. Agreed. And I've run lawful, stupid NPCs before, and everyone seems to find it entertaining. They seem to be everybody's favorite NPC because you feel like you're outsmarting somebody. So, of course, we then have to get to 4th edition. 4th edition got rid of the alignment restriction on paladins for good. Paladins are now champions of a specific deity. Their alignment just has to match the deity. As it probably should have from the beginning. Yeah, I guess. Well, in the beginning, paladins were supposed to be holy warriors of good-aligned deities specifically. So, them being lawful good kind of fit the idea. By 4th edition, they're just like, no, a paladin is a general term for anyone who is a holy warrior for a deity, even if you're evil and your deity is a dick. Um, so your alignment needed to match your deity. In 4th edition, there was also no way to fall or lose your powers. Once the deity had given them to you, they were yours for good. No backsies. No backsies. Paladins also showed up in the player's handbook in 4th edition, unlike some of the other classes we've discussed. Woo! Monk, barbarian, a couple of things like that. Which, uh, good for paladins, I guess? Yep. I don't know a huge amount about 4th edition. We're not going to talk about it anymore. 5th edition has paladins front and center. They're in the player's handbook. They're one of the very popular choices. I think they're kind of in the mid-tier of it. They are certainly one of the most balanced choices in the game. They're good at combat. They can do magic. They can t like take a hit or two. Their hit dice is D10s. They have cool abilities, and they can heal themselves, making them kind of a really strong all-arounder, tank, damage dealer, magic user, self-sufficient character. If you're just starting and you want something that's not super complicated, but gets to do cool things and has a really good chance of surviving to the end of an adventure, you can do a lot worse than choosing a paladin. I'm pretty sure our last campaign had a paladin and he was very helpful. That he was. Uh, when one of your, he was an NPC and when one of your characters died, they just took over the paladin and rocked people for the rest of the campaign i believe he wrestled a dragon yeah i think he did wrestle a dragon we he wrestled something with the help of an enlarged spell yeah i think it was a young black dragon yep that was it yeah that was that was badass so fifth edition paladins 
are not specifically holy warriors of a deity. They are characters that devote themselves to a path and obey a certain set of tenets and choose an oath that reflects their tenets. Eh, not quite as cool. Their powers can come from a deity if you want them to, but they don't have to be religious in nature, which gives you a lot more leeway for character backstory. A lot of the classic abilities of the Paladin class from previous editions are still there. From first level, Paladins have a divine sense that can detect evil creatures, specifically undead and fiends, along with the ability to heal using their lay on hands. As they grow, they get spellcasting similar to clerics, along with the Divine Smite, which converts spell slots into extra damage when you hit with an attack. They also get immunity to disease, auras that protect characters around them, more attacks, and the ability to touch somebody and, like, end a spell that's been cast on them, sort of a cancel a curse or something else like that. They also get a ability called Channel Divinity, which they use in various different ways depending on what oath they have. And they've got oaths. Oh yeah. The core book gives you three oaths. The Oath of Devotion, the Oath of the Ancients, and the Oath of Vengeance. Xanathar's added two new ones, the Oath of Conquest and the Oath of Redemption. And Tasha's Cauldron of Everything added the Oath of Glory and the Oath of the Watchers. So let's dig in. The Oath of Devotion is the classic Holy Knight Paladin archetype. Tenets of the Oath are honesty, courage, compassion, honor, and duty. Their channel divinity allows you to make your weapons magical and glow with holy light. And you get a turn the unholy ability. Fiends, undead, just classic, you know, brandish your holy symbol, you know, back foul beast. At high levels, they project an aura that prevents allies from being charmed and gives additional protective effects. Eventually, 20th level, you emit an aura of sunlight and do extra damage to any enemy that enters it for, like, once per day ability. They're a great choice if you want to ruin a vampire's day. <laughs> and then we have the Oath of the Ancients. The Oath of the Ancients is kind of the green knight, the horned knight. They're the protector of nature and life. They're like a holy ranger, or a heavily armored druid. Their channel divinity lets them ensnare people with plants, and use the turn undead kind of thing on fey and demons. At higher level, they get innate warding against magical damage. They stop aging, they can ignore being dropped to zero hit points once per day, and eventually they get a cool like nature transformation ability that gives them regeneration, makes spellcasting faster, and gives foes close to you disadvantage against being hit by your spells. They're the nature ones, and they're the ones that I was saying that if you wanted to cast Find Steed and it turns a chipmunk into something you could ride, it would make sense. I like the idea of uh, the nature paladin. It's like a druid on steroids. Yeah, I like to think of it as the, like, knight that works with a druid. Or you just go, uh... I guess maybe lawful evil or neutral evil, just have him be an eco-terrorist. You could certainly do that, yeah. I might have to save that idea for later. Like I said, the Green Knight from Arthurian mythology kind of fits with the Oath of the Ancients, too. So, you know, the, the knight that is a force of nature rather than a force of a deity is what this oath is. So there's a lot of cool things you can do with him. And then there is the Oath of Vengeance. 
These are sometimes called Dark Knights. Yes, it's exactly what you're thinking. This is the magical fantasy Batman. <laughs> I was like, Dark Knight, what is what is Dark Knight? I can't I can't believe I didn't connect the dots on that one. Yeah, it's magic fantasy Batman. You can use your channel divinity to strike fear into the cowardly and superstitious. Or you pick like a specific creature and go, you, and gain advantage against it. At higher levels, when you hit someone with an opportunity attack, you can chase them. And like the person you've gone, you, and like chosen as an enemy with a vow of enmity, you can like hit them whenever they try to make an attack. At 20th level, you gain temporary wings and an aura of menace that frightens all nearby foes. A literal Batman. Yeah, it's just Batman. It's just the paladin that is Batman. I'm not angry about this. I'm impressed. I'll allow it. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I I like the concept. I mean, you could also, if you say, ducked into Artificer a little, be the Punisher. <laughs> I love that idea, too. Or just went crossbows for every weapon, you could be the Punisher with an Oath of Vengeance paladin so there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it it also makes for a good um reoccurring villain in a campaign or i guess reoccurring anti-hero npc if you have an oath of vengeance paladin who's going after the same enemies that the party is but doesn't really care so much about taking them alive or getting information out of them or any of that just a dash of dash of evil paladin Provides a little uh, little bit of flavor and a little bit of difference to what's going on. Whoopsie-daisy. Yeah, Dash of Evil. And then we get into Xanathar's Guide of Everything, where that Dash of Evil becomes, oops, I accidentally put the whole thing in there. Yeah, the Oath of Conquest. All about that conquering and subjugating life. They are perfect for playing in... Boo, imperialism. Yes, they are the Imperialist Paladins. They're great if you want to play a straight-up evil paladin. Some serve evil gods or archdevils. Their channel divinity frightens people, or gives you a bonus to hit. At higher levels, you generate an aura that weakens or damage creatures who are frightened of you. You can also automatically deal psychic damage to anyone who hits you with an attack. At 20th level, they get a temporary form that provides them resistance to all damage, lets them make even more attacks, and their crits hit on 19s as well as 20s. They're big, bad, stabby paladin boys. And they tend to be evil. I guess you could make a good one who's trying to conquer things in the name of, like, preventing a war or something, but... I guess unless you're trying to conquer, like, Avernus... Uh, yeah, I don't know if there's such a good thing as good conquest. Yeah, I wouldn't say so either, especially when you have the other option from Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which is the Oath of Redemption. Their oath is all about peace, innocence, patience, and wisdom. They're not pacifists, but they are dedicated to the pursuit of peace, and more willing to talk it out than to duke it out. They're like Jedi. They're like Jedi, they're like the party mom, I guess. They're like the wise old uncle who keeps telling you that you gotta look within yourself to know yourself, you know. 
you guys don't stop arguing. I'm turning this caravan around right now. Their channel divinity gives them bonuses to persuasion checks and can sort of like return damage to someone who just made an attack. At higher level, you get an aura that allows you to basically take damage instead of your allies if they're nearby. And you get damage regeneration when you drop below half health. Woo! At 20th level, you become an Avatar of Peace. Interestingly, unlike all the other paladins who their ability is something they can trigger once per day, the Oath of Redemption paladin 20th level ability is on all the time unless you make an attack or cause damage to someone. Because it's about the pacifisms. When the ability is on, you have damage resistance to everything. And creatures who hit you take half the amount of damage they did back as radiant damage. Ow. Yeah. It, it's great if you want to do a pacifist run. I will say that. And, yeah, like I said, could be a fun mentor character or a great NPC supporter for the party. If you want someone who is actually dangerous in combat but doesn't get into combat, Oath of Redemption Paladin. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything added two new ones. The Oath of Glory is the first one. It's for someone who wants to be the famous destined warrior who's going to save everybody. Great for someone who wants their character to be the center of attention, or if you want to play a narcissist. Their channel divinity gives them advantage on athletics and acrobatics checks, or can be used to give temporary hit points to your allies when you hit a foe and smite them. You hit someone, you look good doing it, everybody is impressed and gets temporary hit points. Dang, pretty boy paladins. They are pretty boy paladins, or pretty girl paladins, or pretty non-binary pal paladins. <laughs> At higher levels, they get an aura that makes their character and their allies faster. Just 10-foot bonus to movement speed, so that you can run across the battle better. That's a... That's a beefy buff right there. It, I mean, it's only 10 feet, and you have to start next to the paladin. Oh. It kind of is like a cool, like, group together and run across the battlefield striking poses sort of maneuver. Um, eventually, you can use your reaction to add your charisma bonus to the armor class of a friendly character when they get hit by an attack. Because I guess you distract the opponent by how pretty you are? Sounds good. At 20th level, you can become a living legend. You can get temporary advantage on all charisma checks, force one attack that misses to hit each turn, and spend your reaction to reroll failed saving throws. These are all pretty great things, and it all kind of works together to be this, like... It, 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 like you said, it's the pretty boy, girl, non-binary paladin. The last one is the Oath of the Watchers, which is paladins who are dedicated to fighting extraplanar threats, things that are invading from other universes or planes or whatever. Things like aberrations, celestials, elementals, fays, or fiends. Their oath is all about vigilance, loyalty, discipline, that kind of stuff. Their channel divinity can be used to give allies advantage on mental saving throws, you know, intelligence, wisdom, charisma, or to turn and, like, force back all those extraplanar creature types that I just named. 
they get an aura that gives everyone around them a bonus to initiative because they're always kind of watchful. A rebuke ability that deals damage to creatures when they target someone with an ability that causes a mental saving throw. That's kind of a weird one. So basically, if somebody casts like a charm spell and your ally succeeds on resisting it, there's a backlash that does damage to whoever cast the charm spell. Seems very specific in its uh, usefulness. The thing is, it would be very useful against things like Beholders, which are aberrations and have that like ray of charm, or Mind Flayers, which do all sorts of spells that target people's mental abilities, or Fiends that charm people, Fae that charm people. It's a lot of these extra planar creatures mess with people's minds, and so this is an ability that harms them for doing that. It fits in pretty closely with what the character class is about. It's just weirdly set up. At 20th level, they get a temporary spark of divine power, which gives them true sight, advantage on all attacks against extraplanar entities, and when you hit an extraplanar entity with an attack, they have to make a saving throw or be banished back to their native plane. Nice. Kick them right out. I guess you could say the Oath of the Watchers are like extra planar border guards. But maybe not dicks about it. Although I guess you could play one who's a dick about it. That wouldn't be, that would be kind of entertaining. Yeah, I kind of, I like that idea. Yeah, and that is the Paladin subclasses gives a huge variety of things that you can do and cool ways to play the class. There are any number of styles of play that you can do with them from the classic Holy Knight, which I have done a couple of times. Done a great dwarf paladin who sadly gave his life to protect the rest of the party and then they didn't come back for his body. Dick move. I've run NPCs. NPC Paladins a few times. I have a planned Oath of Vengeance NPC Paladin showing up in a game at some point. Paladins are fun. I like them. But there's one Paladin that we need to figure out here real quick, Ed. Modron. The Modron Paladin. What would you think is the best subclass for our Modron Paladin? My my funny bone must be defective tonight because I cannot think of what would be a hilarious Modron? Well, I have two options for you. The first one is the Oath of the Watchers. A Modron paladin who is still sticking to his lawful nature and is attempting to deport every creature back to its original plane. Yeah. Doesn't matter doesn't matter where it came from or where it is now, it needs to go home. Yeah, I I dig it. I like that one. And my second one, my second option for you here, is an Oath of Vengeance Modron Paladin. (laughs) Yes, a Batman Modron who has sworn vengeance against some organization for presumably the smallest of unintentional slight. Or maybe they just misfiled some paperwork and he has sworn eternal vengeance against them. Yes, Bureaucrat of Vengeance. Yes, so he has become a vengeful paladin and strikes fear into the heart of their organization. I demand spell check. 
because people who do not file the TCS report properly are a superstitious, cowardly lot. Yeah, those are some good ones. Those are my options. I think the Oath of Vengeance is a little stronger, because the Oath of the Watchers is... Eh, funny, but also... too real. So yeah, Batman Modron Paladin. That's what we're saying is the correct way to play a Modron Paladin here. And that's Paladins. Uh, great class, good starter class if you want someone to stick around. There's enough variety in them that I think people can come up with a cool backstory and a cool idea of what they're doing with them. If you want to learn more about classic Paladins, uh, go find a translation of the Song of Roland, I guess. Uh, don't tell me what happens. Spoiler alert. I haven't read to the end of a 800-year-old poem yet. I got, I got no joke there, sorry. No jokes? No jokes. So on this podcast, we like to end with a segment called Board Game Corner. And tonight, I'm going to go with one of mine, which is Vice by Sandhat Games. I believe it was originally published around 2015. It is a card game of capture and control. It's a fun little game has some really nice looking cards uh they have this great art style that i really dig and the basic premise is that you lay out cards that have various artworks sort of matching artworks on them you have a hand of cards and you have a hand of royalty cards and on your turn you place a new card next to the ones that are on the table if the card matches one that it is adjacent to, like left, right, up, down, then you add a little marker onto them to indicate that you now control those. Then the next player will do theirs, and they'll add another card. There's only, I think, four of each card in the deck, so as you play, you kind of build this section, and you win by controlling the largest contiguous area. That's your kingdom. And the game kind of like spreads out as people keep adding cards around the edges. You also, beyond just having like matching cards, you have royalty cards, a little hand of them. There's what? A... Boop, boop, boop. The family cards are the, the advisor, the king, the queen, and the heir. The heir. And they each capture in a different direction. The advisor captions every card around it. The king captures vertical and horizontally, one card. The queen captures diagonally. And the heir captures one of the surrounding cards. So you can use this to, like, break up somebody else's line of cards that's connecting their kingdom. You can use it to, like, spread out how you're playing or to just capture a giant chunk of things at the end of the game. The... Games can be pretty quick if you don't use a lot of the cards, or they can last quite a long time if you put all the cards in and shuffle it up and have a bunch of people playing. I like it because it's very pretty. It's very simple rules-wise, but there is a good depth of play to it. And there are, and at least the edition I bought came with a set of legendary cards that are basically special ability ones that you can put into play that do different things from 
removing all the tokens around it to multiple people can control this place to increasing hand size for whoever controls it, you know, stuff like that. It makes it more diff it makes it interesting and depending on what you use, you can uh, change up how the game plays. Also, you can change up how the game plays just by changing how the cards are laid out for the starting hand. So yeah, it's one I would recommend. I think it's pretty cheap if you can find it. I I found it at a local game store that was showing it off. I don't know how widely available it is, so you might have to check Amazon. Again, that's Vi, spelled V-Y-E. Normally I'd say boo Amazon, but sometimes they really are the only place to find things, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I don't know how widely this one was published, so... Yeah. But generally speaking, yes, boo Amazon. And that's our show. Uh, thank you for tuning in. As always, you can find us on Twitter at, at NoelCountry. You can find us on Instagram at NoelCountry. You can like this podcast or rate it on whatever podcasting app you are listening to it on. We appreciate it. We really do. It helps other people find and listen to the podcast as well. More gamers is more better. Yes. If you're listening to us in Germany, again, guten Tag, wie geht's? Guten Tag. If you're listening to us in France, bonjour, and don't spoil the song of Roland for me. Bonjour. If you're listening to us in Russia, dobre dien. If you're listening to us in Canada, send poutine. If you're listening to us in Philly, you. So, Ed, do you have any commercials for the end of the episode? You can follow me on Instagram at adamadness. Uh, it's been a little bit dead there lately just because I haven't been doing much hobby stuff. And then uh, be sure to purchase a bag of our Null Country branded uh, gibberling feed. Guaranteed to bring more gibberlings to your yard. Gibberling feed should not be fed to small pets, gibbering mouthers, or any other creature other than gibberlings. Yep. Only gibberlings and nothing happens if it doesn't work. You don't get your money back. You just have the security of knowing that you have not attracted more gibberlings to your yard.